0: Good morning, Highland Baptist Church. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and hard to believe, I said at the early service, that I was interim pastor here 31 years ago. You all got old. And I did too, as it turns out. Uh, thank you for this kind invitation. It means a great deal to me this morning. The Hebrew Bible lesson is found in Genesis chapter 2, the 18th verse and following. Hear the reading of the word of God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every animal in the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, <clears throat> he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then, God, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh, the word of the Lord to you, God. the heavy chunks of earth broke like stones beneath his hole. The hot sun forced beads of sweat from his forehead. The dust of the ground burned in his eyes. He dropped the hoe, walked over to the shade, and drank some water from the gourd dipper. An unexpected breeze brought momentary coolness. Suddenly time stood still and he remembered Eden, that fleeting moment when he had it all and lost it. Adam, a woman's voice cried, Adam, time to eat. Perhaps we all linger after Eden from time to time. Conjuring up memories of better days and easier moments when life was less complex and hope-secure. Of things we've lost and things we wished we'd never found. They are moments that a certain smell or place, word or person can come rushing back to, bring rushing back to us. Who among us has not, at least occasionally, dreamed of Eden, Camelot, Utopia, or Oz? Times we remember or long for when everything worked the way we hoped it would. Eden was perfection, we suppose. An ideal environment where everything was as it should be. A place we lost but long for still. But the Bible does not really say it was a perfect place, not directly. We've read that into the story. The text simply says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and there put a man, Adam, whom he formed. The Lord God made trees spring from the ground, all trees pleasant to look at and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, God set the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to till it and care for it. Even Eden needed work. Trim the shrubs, Adam. Pull the weeds, pick the broken branches, watch out for the gopher holes and the gnats. Adam should have had plenty to occupy his time, but even Eden could not keep loneliness from creeping in. You can get lonely even in paradise. So God created partners, the Bible says, wild animals and all the birds of heaven. In the first chapter of Genesis, God creates animals and birds, then human beings. In chapter 2, A human appears on the scene, and then other living things are created. In that chapter, Adam is given a variety of tasks. Care for the garden, gather food, avoid the tree of good and evil, and in his spare time, name every living creature. And God says, whatever you call it, Adam, that's its name. In our rush to the talking snake, original sin and the divine eviction, notice, we often overlook the power of naming. In the garden, in Eden, Adam named the world. In the Bible, names describe unique qualities and distinct character traits. Sometimes they chart the direction of one's life. In fact, Um, For the Hebrew writer, a thing is not real until it has a name. One scholar writes, a name is necessary for the Hebrews for full existence. Adam is the name for an individual and the name for the entire race. Adam, you see, is the Hebrew word for man, Adam. So the text we translate, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, could also read, The Lord God formed Adam from the dust of the Adama. Adam's name comes from the dust from which he is made and to which we all return. It represents all humanity. Still lonely, however, Adam implores God for company, and woman enters the world bringing community with her. He called the woman Eve, the text says, because she was the mother of all who live. Names define the person. It happens throughout the Bible. Isaac means laughter, which is all his ancient postmenopausal mother. Sarah could do on the way home from the OBGYN's office. <laughs> Esau means red, which is the way he looked when he came into the world and what he saw when his brother Jacob cheated him out of his father's blessing. Jacob's name means heal, heel, because he was holding on to his twin brother's When he was born, and because he turned out to be one. Thank you. We are twenty-one years members of the oldest African American Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. You all are a little quiet for me this morning. I need a, I need a witness. Thank you, thank you. I knew, I knew. We all name and give identity to persons. We speak the words mom, dad, and the distinctiveness of two human beings are changed forever. Think of all the people you have named and in doing that impacted their identity. You remember all the weird and wonderful names we give our grandparents? Ma." Paw, paw grandpa grandma Grandpa-Grandma, mom, mom, pop, pop, zippity doo da One of my grandmothers, rest in peace, I hope she does, uh, when she found out my mother was pregnant, declared that when I entered the world, I could call her anything but Granny. Overhearing that conversation in utero, And being, as the Calvinists tell us, totally depraved, as soon as I could speak, I naturally called her, yep, and because she loved me, she accepted that name with long-suffering after all. Who have you named? Father, mother, husband, wife, friend, enemy, Republican, Democrat, teacher, student, son, daughter? We give people all kinds of names. In our Baptist tradition, we, we are all asked to name the Christ, not just for the church, but for ourselves. And what are the people who taught you to name? Can you recall today the people who taught you to name letters and numbers, trees and flowers? Animals and birds, novelists, and and philosophers, photographers too, if you want to. (laughs) And so the story goes, the animals came trooping by, and Adam named them, everyone. At first glance, it seems innocent enough. As human society developed, however, naming often is given to the privileged, And that's when things get, well, a little serpentine. Perhaps one of the signs of the fall of Adam and Eve and the rest of us is when empowered people or people who want to be empowered turn names into labels Dismissing other human beings with designations that dehumanize, minimize, or seek to destroy the imago dei, the divine image, in others who are different. I'd run a list for you this morning, but I think we all know word labels that endure in our own society, particularly these days, perhaps even in our own mouths and hearts. I was thinking, driving to church this morning, if you've just watched cable television this week, you know what I'm talking about. In a wonderful one-page 1990 story in the New Yorker called, She Unnames Them, Ursula Le Guin turns the creation story on its head by proposing that Eve, on her way out of the garden, convince the animals to reject their names, the names Adam had given them. These names, Eve concludes, had stood between myself and them like a clear barrier so close that my fear of them and their fear of me became one and the same fear. Sometimes names hold us at a distance and make us afraid of each other. These days we need to keep rereading the creation story because we're tearing it apart as we live in this world. I write a twice-monthly column for Baptist. News Global. And this week, my column features a a response to a book manuscript by my Jewish friend uh, Roger Gottlieb uh, called um, Morality and the Environmental Crisis. Don't read it unless you're prepared for somber predictions, not of what is to come but what is now. I I, I heard Gottlieb speaking this morning when we read this text. One species disappears from the earth every 11 minutes. Naming. Naming. The cats, Eve says in Le Guin's article, never accepted names that anyone gave them preferring their own self-given, unspoken, ineffably personal names that only cats know. Can I get a witness from cat people here? Of course. Uh, The other animals in the article were hesitant at first to jettison Adam's nomenclatures until they realized, Eve says, that the issue was precisely one of individual choice and that they were free to name themselves themselves. Eve even unnames herself, telling Adam, you and your father lent me this name, gave it to me actually. It's been really useful, but it doesn't exactly seem to fit very very well lately. But thanks anyway. The things we name are not as manageable as the pliant animals in the story in the garden. The names we give people are not always the names they accept or deserve. Some parents aren't parents. Some friends aren't really friends. Spouses don't always accept the names or the roles we place upon them. One commentator writes, There are some forces surrounding every individual which are like wild beasts that stay wild. We cannot change them by pretending that this is not the way they are. These hearts of ours are not innocent gardens of Eden where nothing dangerous intrudes. There are appetites and passions against which we have to be on guard. As a man at night would have to be on watch against a tiger or a wolf. We'd better call them by their right names. So what's the point of this ancient story? Is it that Adam and Eve sinned and we are all infected by their sinful nature? That's one historic explanation. Is it that they were merely a parable of how the early Hebrews sought to explain human origins? A fascinating but antiquated little short story. That's another explanation among multitudes from literature, history, and theology. For myself... I think that whatever the theory of the text, the story is as much about us as about them. Like Adam and Eve, we have the power to choose, and sooner or later we make choices we wish we had never made. And we, like they, have to face the consequences. We lose our innocence, and maybe, if we're lucky, we grow up. And we do ever make choices. We all know moments of our own creation when we did something that proved to be irrevocable. Something that once it was done, we could never take back or put things back the way they were. And that is why this story is less about the loss of paradise than about the loss of innocence about having it all and losing it all and learning to live with the consequences we start the world over again when we enter the world. We're all born into Eden, naming for ourselves the new world into which we've come. Sooner or later, we all lose our innocence and are forced to decide who we are, to find names that help us face our real selves. And sometimes, names become a way of reconciling people we never thought possible. Knowing it was World Communion Sunday, I remembered the year 2005 when I joined two Wake Forest professors, 12 Wake Forest undergraduates and one brave Divinity School student, for a service-learning project in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam, helping to build a two-room school in a commune deep in the jungle. For days, we worked with the Vietnamese faculty, students, and townspeople, painting, planting, and otherwise preparing the building for a new generation of Vietnamese students. Our hosts a married couple who were civil officials in the commune made lunch for us daily and stretched hammocks for afternoon naps around their spacious, dirt-floored, thatch-roofed home. On one wall, there were photos of the couple from their youth holding rifles and dressed in the pajama-like uniforms of the Viet Cong combatants in what the Vietnamese called the American War. When the work was ended and the school dedicated, our Wake Forest group departed the village amid hugs and tears of a brief but astonishingly profound experience. A year later, one of our colleagues returned to the commune and discovered that while the school was still intact much of the village had been washed away in a devastating typhoon. The house where we took meals and naps was gone, and only the wooden beams and the doorposts remained, awaiting rebuilding. What she found was that after we returned home, the former Viet Cong had carved each of our names on a beam at the entrance of what had been and would be again their home. And for one brief shining moment, a group of all too privileged Americans understood something of the unexpected grace of names carved Quite literally, in a Mekong Delta commune, a tiny but intense taste of peace and maybe Eden. So come to the table this morning. Your names are carved here, everyone. Amen.